Welcome to the Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life. As always and ever, I'm Scott Jones, your host, and we come to you every Friday to discuss, among other things, the contents of our weekly wrap-up piece, Another Week Ends, which is sort of our Christian Cosmopolitan's grace-infused guide to the contents of the interwebs for the week. In just a few moments, I'll be joined by Ethan Richardson and Sarah Condon to talk about the contents of Another Week Ends. But first, I had the pleasure of talking with Eric Gutzman, who works for Key Life Network and is the producer of the Steve Brown Radio Show and has recently written a great book called The Seed, A True Myth. My conversation with Eric Gutzman. All right, on the Mockingcast for the first time, but an old friend of Mockingbird and of David Zoll's, Eric Gutzman, who is the VP of Communications and Executive Producer of the Key Life Network. And for those of you who listen to Steve Brown's radio show, he's the announcer, the producer. His voice is probably familiar, although it's not, you have a great voice, but not as unique as Steve Brown's. I mean, no. nobody, do you have to get special like microphones to pick up his register on the yeah, you have to EQ it, and you have to back off some of the bass, and you, you do have to treat him a little different than a normal human being. I remember David's last uh, last appearance on your show when he was like, I mean, you and your daddy, they're going to kill you boys, those Pharisees. <laughs> they're going to kill you boys. <laughs> That's my favorite part. I like loved it. It's like the best. I know. I know. So such an opportunity for envy for us people in in broadcasting and recording. Now, when you're not uh, when you're not producing and doing m- multimedia, apparently you're finding time to write books. And this is the book I'm holding here in front of me is "The Seed: A True Myth" by Eric Gutzman. Here it is. So let me ask you this: using a term like myth uh, in in to describe. Uh, a piece of literature that it, that's always a, a loaded term. So tell me, what do you mean by myth? Well, I mean a few different things. Um, one, I'm playing off of the stories I've heard about C.S. Lewis coming to faith and Tolkien talking to him about uh, Jesus and what we read in the Gospels you know, being the one true story, the one true myth that is reflected and. Um, you know, there's a pattern that we see in cultures and stories uh, all over the world uh, and over time. And uh, Tolkien used this idea that, well, what if, what if this story just uh, was was true this one time? Um, and you know, talked to Lewis about uh, the, the Christian faith, and Lewis came to believe because of that um, that concept. So, so I'm I'm talking about the Christian story being a true myth in that sense. Um, but then it's also mythic because it's a mythic spiritual memoir. So it's my story and there's truth in it. Uh, there's and- kind of a reveal at the end. I mean, there's a reveal. I, 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 you know, as I was reading it, one of the characters whose names I'm not going to, I don't want to, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to do any spoiler alerts, but I was like, Oh, okay. Okay. So yeah. it's, yeah. I mean, cause it, you do weave in seemingly your own sort of spiritual autobiography with, a kind of reimagination of the primeval biblical story. 
Right. I wanted to weave my story into the biblical narrative and then do it in an imaginative, mythic way. And so the characters do reflect parts of me uh, as I've gone into counseling and dealt with all my own stuff. Um, I've I've learned some some things about myself over time. And then I, I wanted to put that in the story and show some of the the things that I did visually, you know, to protect myself from this, uh, this shadow and, you know, kind of build a monument to my own competence and, you know, all the, all these different, uh, themes and, um, you know, my own kind of going mad with that, that process. Um, so I wanted to, to show that in a story, but then weave it into what we read in the Bible, but do it in a way that was hopefully surprising for the reader that they would start to see similarities, but not like write it off because they had it figured from the beginning. So, yeah, so it's, it's, uh, it's mythic in that way. Um, so it's a true story, but, uh, you know, with, with mythic imagery. And, you know, I was also really influenced by, um, you know, I joke that George Lucas hijacked my life as a young man, and then later find out that uh, he was influenced by Joseph Campbell, and then find out that Joseph Campbell was influenced by Carl Jung, and so I start looking at all of these um, archetypes and, and images, and you know the monomyth and um, the 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 way that like you know you see uh, you know the the journey that Luke Skywalker takes or the journey that uh, Neo takes in the Matrix. You see these these similarities, and I wanted to play with that too in um, you know in in my story where. You know, I have a labyrinth. Luke has a Death Star. Neo has the Matrix, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I I didn't want to uh, make myself really the hero of the story. I wanted to would kind of turn that on its head and um, have myself kind of be the damsel in distress in a way. <laughs> yeah. Do you think too? Like one of the things that struck me as I read the book was that you know I think that. Uh, there are certain parts of the Bible that are probably meant to be read much more like realistic history or, or uh, with the genre of historical fiction. Like these are pretty true to true to you know they're told in the in in in, in a way that the, the world works pretty similar to the way ours does. And then at the bookends of the Bible, in those first chapters of Genesis, maybe the end of Revelation, it seems like these things aren't meant to be read that way. They're meant to be read a little more imaginatively, and maybe and so one of the things I feel like your book is an invitation to people who maybe uh, almost have an over-familiarity with, with the opening chapters of the Bible and the way they are uh, our spiritual f- ancestors, and yet they're also all of us. Yeah. And also their story is part of a story that is the story of the cosmos beginning and end. Yeah. I, I felt like your book invites the reader to, to, to maybe... Uh, be a more literary, like literally imaginative reader of of the Bible. Yeah, yeah. Um, a couple things come to mind as you say those things. Uh, one, going to seminary and studying Genesis and Exodus really threw me for a loop. I, I never graduated. I've got like twenty two credit hours of classes, <laughs> but um, as I started looking at source material and. And all these questions started coming up about the the literal nature of the texts, and um, you know, I just was was really um, wondering, well, what does this all mean? What does this all mean for my faith? And so there's a bit of that struggle that you that maybe comes through in the book, and, and that I, I needed to come to a place where it's it's true, and and I believe it, 
um, but but also just kind of hold it loosely. And uh, so there's that 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 there were, were doubts that I that I was dealing with, um, you know, uh, around. That, that narrative was there a literal snake that tempted the woman and and, and all of that um, and and so then the other thing about the invitation is yeah like the the female character and the male character that you're introduced to early in the book the couple um, you know they're me too just like this other character that you reference uh, is me but but they're me in the sense that they're there are parts of me that I got from my parents and parts that they got from their parents and that, yeah, it goes all the way back. And it's really, we're all living the same story and we kind of have these, the, this, uh, the, the, the primeval male and female like imprinted on our beings. And um, there's the, of course, the fall and, and the brokenness and, and everything that we inherit. And so, yeah, they're me too. And, um, and, and so there's this, this union and unity that that I wanted to follow all the way through from from the beginning then to the end, like you said, the book ends. Um, I wanted to reimagine the beginning and reimagine uh, the end, and then see how how was I wrapped up into that, and how am I really? Um, you know, you think of like Adam as as the the federal head, uh, and um, or Jesus as the federal head, and like how do how do you? live and function within that theology. Um, and so then I, that's all kind of heady stuff. And I wanted to just write a story that, that pictured it rather than write a book that talked about the theology of it. You know, two things that, or a couple of things that seem to me threads that run throughout um, the story that uh, love and freedom are intimately bound up and that, what seems like something that is a blocker to both is regret. You know, when people, it seems like uh, Robert Jensen's a theologian, a uh, Lutheran theologian. He says that, you know, when the future comes to us as law or obligation, what it does is it makes the future depend on the past. So how life is going to be is because of your screw up. He says, when it comes as promise, it means the past is determined by the future. The future can actually recreate your past. Um, yeah. through, through, through an unconditional offer to freedom and love, that came through really clear in the in the narrative. That like you know that one of the things that uh, the love and freedom come and try to like uh, help people see their whole stories, the good, bad, and the ugly, under the arc of love. Yeah, yeah. The characters are confronted with these choices that they have to make, but they're confronted with them uh, by their father, who tells them what's going to happen before it happens. And he says, you know, if this happens, then these are going to be the consequences. Uh, and then he also offers them these gifts that um, by the end of the book, you realize, oh, this is how they were always supposed to receive these gifts. But um, when you're in the middle of the book and you're seeing all the mess from their choices, you know, it's so, uh, um, it's so um, clouded. It's not clear. Uh, but, so I wanted to show that they had the, this freedom to make these choices, but by the end of the book, all of the worst stuff that they did was redeemed. And that um, even the things they did you know, against their father and um, really that messed up their own lives and, and their relationship, um, that even that uh, had a surprising um, fruitfulness and redemption at the end. And um, when you consider that... Um, 
love in my book is outside of time, then I, I wanted their free choices to kind of exist within his freedom to make choices and not be bound by time like they were, so that um, all things could work together for good. You know, it's so interesting that one of the, your the characters has this kind of poem he sings about your own efforts and how God will bless them if they're sincerely your efforts. And if you, I'm just thinking like, you know what? A lot of people probably, uh, this would be their, this is like the, uh, this is the uh, mythical version of God helps those who help themselves. Yeah. Kind of theology. (laughs) Yeah. I I had hoped that um, there would be a vision of God that was so familiar to people that they would embrace it early on in the book, and that um, later on I could really show them how they've they've bought a lie. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, you encounter what you think. Yeah, yeah, we're supposed to um, be faithful and and work hard, and uh, he'll bless us if we are, you know, acting um, in accordance with his will. Um, and that just feels so right to us. But it's not that uh, upside down crazy Jesus world of the Bible. It's that, um, it's that common sense. And, um, and so, yeah, I wanted to turn everything on its head at, at a certain point so that you could realize, no, that's actually a trap. Don't get into that tit for tat that, uh, with God, that, that really his gift of love can undo all the worst things that we've done to ourselves and, and to each other. And that's a, a matter of coming to your own, uh, uh, you know, realization or acceptance of your own brokenness and helplessness and, and then opening yourself to you know, being saved, like I said before, to realize you're the damsel in distress, you're not the hero of your own story. I'm interested, I'm interested to know, like, have you had readers who, are not, who would not identify uh, as, as Christians read this? I've had one or two people um, get uh, back to me on social media after reading it. It's only been out. Uh, for less than a month, so I haven't got uh, gotten a lot of reader reaction, um, and I've I've had them talk about how they enjoy how I use symbolism and and myth, and my hope is that uh, uh, as people uh, talk to me about it, that then I can engage in conversation with them about what it all means to me. Um, so yeah, I've just gotten just a little bit of that, and. So that is one of my hopes for the book is that I can, I can present my faith in a way that um, doesn't throw up all kinds of barriers, all kinds of cultural uh, misunderstandings. So I don't want to use any terminology or try not to use any term- terminology that people would automatically dismiss or go, oh, yeah, I got you figured. I know what that's all about. And then we couldn't have that, that conversation because I just find myself so often um, – hitting a wall when it comes to saying, no, no, you don't understand. That's not what I mean <laughs> by, um, by my faith in Jesus. Um, and so uh, I hope that presented, presenting things the way that I did in the book, that it would be an opportunity for those conversations. But I've only just had a, a couple glimpses of them so far. Yeah, because you see the way, like, how, like the wide reception beyond uh, the church, or traditional religious people, that something like, Lord of the Rings has gotten, right. or, or, you know, the Narnia story. So it's, it's right, you know, I thought this is a very imaginative way to get at some truths. And actually, you know, it's funny, it might be an actual way to get, to, like, to get some Christians to, to buy out of some things that aren't true. Right. Like, so, like some of the, like, uh, high anthropologically uh, self-help rooted kind of spirituality that, like, it seems like most Americans are just 
intuitively, you know, drawn to. Right, right. That's kind of what I was referring to earlier. The, so there's that dual purpose of, of, of shaking people out of, of their misunderstanding, whether they're in the church and uh, have faith or whether they're outside of it or, or exploring or misunderstanding, um, so that it could come to both people and um, kind of sneak in to challenge misconception. Can you want to say more about your own story and where, like, and how it like inspired uh, the yeah. book? Yeah, I um in in college, uh, you know, I like to say that um, that my my first degree, I, I um, just got high <laughs> all the time to get through my first degree, um, just you know, smoking pot and stuff, and uh, just uh, to deal with the stress and anxiety of that, and still perform at a you know, high level. I got straight A's, um, but I always felt the need to medicate, and so then. With my second degree, I thought, well, you know, I've, I've then come to faith, and I thought, well, I shouldn't be doing some illegal substances. So um, then I uh, just drank my way <laughs> through the MBA, um, and certainly that's not uh, <laughs> in keeping with the biblical <laughs> you know, <laughs> mandate either, but at least I, I was making a progression away from just being totally uh, illegally uh, you know, abusing substances. <laughs> I don't know. You know, the twisted yeah, mind. Pilgrim's twisted, progress. It's the, Pilgrim's progress. Right. The twisted mind of a religionist who likes to, you know, embrace certain parts of the law to make themselves feel better, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but that's the way it went, you know, in my, in my skewed way of thinking. And um, so I drank my way through my MBA and then I started going to seminary and I, I was like, you know, I don't want to drink or smoke my way through seminary, but I still need to perform. And, um, you know, I want to do well. I'm, I am really compulsive and a perfectionist and, um, and driven. And I think there's just a, a root of shame. That's part of the story that, you know, I'm always trying to, um, you know, I don't know, prove something to myself or the world around me, you know, that I'm not so inadequate. But um, anyway, uh, so I'm going to seminary and, all that to say, I went to counseling because I had to deal with it. Mm-hmm. How do I function? How do I deal with this anxiety and, and, and then not abuse substances? And so I thought, you know, I just need a couple little tweaks. <laughs> Can you just help me not drink as much? <laughs> and um, it, went, it went deeper than that. And so in the story, it's really the journey of, of me finding um, you know, what I had done in my life to deal with the loss and pain of the past. And so in the book, there is a shadow uh, that has taken, uh, in one form or another, taken the home of the main character. Uh, There's a hunter whose family uh, has been taken by the shadow, and then there's this young couple whose home has been destroyed by the shadow. And so that's representative of uh, this, what my counselor uh, identified as uh, neglect in my life, that there is a black hole. And he said it's, it's more insidious than abuse because like, with abuse, you can look at this happened to you, you can deal with it. With n- neglect, you don't know what you were supposed to have. You just have this lack. And um, so that's where this imagery of this shadow and black hole, and it, you know, in the book, it has this gravitational pull and, um, so my life was like that. There was this black hole at the center that uh, was was pulling things towards it and kind of shaking everything with its gravitational pull and threatening to shake it apart. And um, so I, I had to I had to encounter that 
And, and I also, like I said, had to encounter what had I done to protect myself from encounter. And so in the book, the characters build this labyrinth. And um, I found myself um, you know, in this labyrinth trapped uh, that I had I'd put it up to protect myself from others and from God. And I found myself isolated and just increasingly crazy. It's like when autoimmune, autoimmune, it's like uh, defense mechanisms, right? Sometimes develop into autoimmune diseases, you know, so it's like defenses start attacking you. Right, right. And so the, the, the thing that you built to protect yourself becomes your own prison. And so in the book, that's where the people find themselves. They're, they're just messed up. And, uh, one of the characters decides to, um, just end it all. And it was, it was only then at that moment of desperation that this, uh, this light of love, I don't want to give away too much, but there's a light that casts that shadow. <laughs> and um, it was about, you know, turning towards the source of all of the pain, but seeing it in a different way. And um, so that's the symbolism. And then you'll see, it's hard to talk about it without giving away too much of the story, but you'll see in the book that there are characters who've lost their roots, literally. But that was figurative for me. I grew up as an army brat, and so I had no... Um, real sense of place or home or rootedness. And um, that lack uh, really haunted me and, um, and drove a lot of my, my performance and just need to be, um, to, to be need for attention. And uh, so that manifested in a lot of ways, grades and things like that. So that's all in the book. <laughs> that's my story. But uh, then it's woven into the narrative of, of the grand story that we read in the Bible. Well, it's a story worth reading, and thanks for talking to us. And everybody listening, I would highly recommend The Seed by Eric Gutzman. And Eric, thanks again for chatting for a few minutes with us on The Mockingcast. Thank you. Well, I don't believe that heaven waits for only those who congregate. I like to think of God as love. He's down below, he's up above He's watching people everywhere He knows who does and doesn't care And I'm an ordinary man Sometimes I wonder who I am But I believe in love Welcome back yet again to the Mockingcast I have here with me, sitting in for the animating force of the zeitgeist who is in California and hopefully going to take our advice to heart about the body shaming talk and male body image stuff that he's giving in California. So if he is, then they're in losing, for a treat. Yeah, he's losing some serious weight. I like that. I like that. Ethan yeah. Richardson sitting hey, in everybody. at Mockingbird headquarters. And as always, Sarah Condit, but not from Texas right now. No. Coming to us from Sewanee, the school of the South, right? That's right. Sewanee School of Theology. Yep. Yep, and yep. you're there for a little while. Your husband's mm-hmm. doing some demon work, right? He is. Yeah, we're here for um, about a week and a half with him. So having a good time. Jesus had a lot to say about demons. Like he took the <laughs> demons, put them in the pigs. <laughs> exactly. Demons, very very New Testament. Um, Every time I say it, I think that. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Don't say that out loud over there. Nope. I want you to su- survive your sojourn at Swanee. Absolutely. So this week, we, uh, we got a couple interesting things to talk about. One being, if this is great, if, if mom blocks were invented in the 70s, 
So uh, I am not a uh, mom. Uh, so I'm not a mom blogger. But uh, Sarah, I don't. You might still mom blog like this. Really, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I mom blog like this like for a very short amount of time. But um, what what I like about this version of of the mom blog? So this is a this is a woman named Victoria Fedden. It's from her uh, her mom blog website. And it's called If 70s Moms Had Blogs. And it's just really uh, dark, which I think is very funny <laughs> and really honest. And, uh, you know, like one paragraph, she she just kind of walks you through her day, like step by step. And, um, you know, she's shoving the kids outside. She's smoking like the whole day um, and drinking a lot of tab. And uh, she says like... Uh, a little while later, here come the girls saying they're hot because it's 80 degrees and sunny. I gave them some more red Kool-Aid and told them if they were hot to stay in the shade and stop whining about it. <laughs> and then she says, that gave me the idea to lay out. So I covered myself in baby oil and positioned my plastic chase lounge right in direct sunlight. I put the baby in the playpen with some blocks while I cracked open a tab and listened to some Neil Sadaka and Captain and Tennille on my portable radio. Don't worry, I put a bonnet on the baby since she doesn't have hair yet. <laughs> it also makes me like, I love the honesty. I love like the fact that it's definitely of an era. Obviously, there's some beautiful stuff here about how much we worry about being parents now and how children have survived uh, so much worse than not organic milk. Um, and I, I love reading this and thinking about what would what would it be like to write um, or to read mom blogs from, you know, from the 1940s. Like, what did those, you know, what does a wartime mom blog look like? Um, so anyway. What about from the, what about from the first century? Mary writing today. I haven't seen Jesus for three days. <laughs> <laughs> I really feel like I screwed up with that angel of the Lord thing. Exactly. <laughs> did I mess up the world's redemption? Oh, well, wine Who cooler knows? time. Right, exactly. <laughs> Send Joseph to go get him. <laughs> Yeah, I thought this was was fun. Yeah, it, it is interesting about the sort of like I mean the anxiety thing that the that some of the mom blog culture can create. It seems it seems like it goes to one end of the other. Yeah. It seems like like I, I'm either this like organic you know uh, vegan warrior mom or I'm sort of like rebelling against. The organic, mm-hmm. so like it might, you know, it, it, it almost does read like a modern version of this, but but not in a sense like you almost get a sense that it's like in defiance of the oh yeah totally of the, yeah the protectionist culture yeah, yeah I call that, that like that, I call that the the I woke up drunk like theory to motherhood like all the moms stand around they're all like I feel so bad Susie you know like whatever didn't get enough sleep last night and then the other mom's like Johnny like you know missed soccer practice yesterday and then like there's a third mom that's just like giving up and is like rebelling against the whole system she's like I woke up drunk like I totally <laughs> think like that's a part of motherhood culture right now it's not good but I mean you know people are gonna push back against the law so. Mm. I, I'm looking for the mediocre mom blogs. <laughs> like I'm not gutsy enough to wake up or, or irresponsible to wake up drunk. Nor are my kids eating all that healthy. Right. <laughs> I think I, that's I, actually I where from... everyone is. Right. Like yeah. we're all mediocre. Yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> So 
So, moving on. Uh, I hope we can, everybody can take a look at that blog because it's quite interesting. Moving on. Ethan, what do we got next here, my friend? Well, Scotty, we got the um, this John Oliver. Um, say what you will about the guy, but there is the... And I will. I will say many good yeah, things about him because I think yeah. he's hilarious. <laughs> he is. Uh, so he gave away $15 million, uh, but not in the way that Oprah does, but instead with this like debt giveaway. Um, his show last week tonight... Um, he, he basically, he, you know, he focuses on one sort of American ailment and this time yeah, around, he, he, he does kind of stories, right? Like where, I mean, he, like he did something on the Indian election, which no one really covered. He's saying, look, this is the big, this is the biggest exercise of democracy that's ever happened. So it's like kind of either Americans, like, you know, why are we insulting people that they, you know, they wouldn't care about this. So it's just all these interesting stories that don't really get picked up. Yeah, I mean, he's kind of he's kind of spending an entire show to say we should be caring about this, but we're not. And yeah. a lot of people sort of balk because he's British, and and so there's already this felt sense of superiority. But but this one's really good. I mean, he's talking about um, medical debt and how how easy it is to basically start a um, a debt collection business. So easy that. He says they started one, and, um, and so he called it. Um, he he registered the company in Mississippi of all states, Sarah. Hey, hey, and um, and he called it uh, the Central Asset Recovery Professional Inc. Uh, or CARP for the bottom feeding fish. And um, and so once he set up the company, he he ends up being able to buy fifteen million dollars worth of medical debt for $60,000. And, and then by the end, sort of hat tipping to Oprah who like once gave like her entire audience, a brand new car. You get a car, you get a car, you get a car, you get a car. I love that. (laughs) He then, he then hits this big ridiculous button and says that, you know, $15 million of debt uh, that did belong to 9,000 people has now been forgiven. Uh, by his and, show. And it was debt that the statute had run out on, right? Like it was no longer collectible right. legally, but most people don't know that. Right. So if your credit rating is decent and you're welcome to buy a house, but you've got this, this is a couple years old, but you're scared. Like, so basically the, the, the motivation for buying that, that cheap is maybe you get a few hundred thousand dollars profit off of just intimidating people and you get their yeah. phone numbers. There's a security number and all this. So basically you can harass people uh, and collect debt that's t- that's legally no longer collectible. Right, it's insane. It is. It's so insane. And so, like people people responded afterwards and said, you know, like it wasn't actually fifteen million dollars, and you know, the the odds of getting that money back is so small that you know it's not realistic that he did what he did. But um, but still, the the thought of you know like. Well, there's there's fifteen million dollars of unpaid, you know, hassles that are going to be, you know, no longer followed up on because of him. So it was go. like a biblical parable. I mean, it was like it was like a parable that you read in the New Testament. You know, like it's there's this, you know, what here's let me tell you about the guy at the game show that exposed this and then you know forgave everybody's debts. It's just a beautiful, um, yeah, it was cool. Yeah, it is. It's super cool, and it sounds superior because it's in a British accent. 
It mm. is, yeah. And then there's the then there's the Stanford um, rape case, which is, I guess, it's the new um, it's it's the new gorilla mom thing. I mean, this is this is yeah. this week's like rage rage of the week. Don't you feel like we all like? I keep thinking of this image of us all sort of piling into like a secular space of worship. And like, you know how all the Protestant churches have like the hymns on the side, you know, on the little board on the side. Mm-hmm. Instead, it's just like, well, we're all supposed Sarah, to be Sarah, angry about. Board. You're talking all like, these Protestant churches that have these, it's the karaoke screen. I'm oh, such, oh, no, you mean you, the old you don't school. Even, you mean the board? You mean the yeah, board yeah, or yeah, you mean the screen? Yeah. No, I mean the board. Are you kidding? The board. Oh, uh, with the numbers? Yeah. With the hymn numbers? Yes. Okay, 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 okay. I forgive you. Dude, I am an old lady. Like, I'm t- I have a son who is five years old, and every time something happens dramatic, he says this Oh, my word. Who does he get that from? <laughs> Bless his heart. Yeah, but anyway, this, uh, yeah, Scott and I have been talking about this a lot this week. It's just so fascinating. Um, this is the latest issue, the latest thing that's happened that we've all got to have a very strong opinion about either way. Um, so this this young man who raped this young woman, his name is Brock Turner, um, and everybody hates him. Uh, there's a small minority who appear to be defending him, but everyone hates him and wants to tar and feather him. And then there's this young woman who he raped, and she's got to come out with a statement. And it's like, what does that say about the new role of victimhood? That like you have to you have you have to justify yourself now. And um, yeah, I said to Scott that it makes me like long for the good old days, which I know had their problems, but where like the boys' club meant that like your dad took this guy out in the woods and shot him, and like instead like this is what like it all has to be relived out publicly. Everyone has an opinion about what's happening, and. Um, and the really strange thing to me, I can't imagine what it must be like to be in the midst of something like this, but it is that next week, no one will care. I mean, how odd must that right. be to be in the midst of this? Everyone has a pen. You're writing a statement. You've been through something incredibly traumatic. And then next week, no one cares. Like, it must be like death. You know, anyway, it's just crazy to me. Yeah, it's like one big Maoist shame circle. Like, yeah. it's, like it's interesting because like, because like, on one level, you could say we've become a more permissive culture, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, we have more latitude. But another level, we're a much less uh, gracious culture. Mm-hmm. And we're a much more judgmental culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, 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 and the shaming and the, and the sort of social death uh, that we put everybody through. Um, and in this instance, it's not just the perpetrator. The victim dies a sort of, it, or maybe that's like social manslaughter because of the sort of thing you've got to do to legitimize the fact that you've been really wounded. I mean, yeah, it's just um, ugly. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Lastly, we have a uh, we have two uh, things about. I mean, this is going to be. Uh, we are really pushing at uh, societal orthodoxy, but we're not alone, right? Ethan, yeah. we got something on uh, Oprah, right? Yeah, we got some. We got some Oprah. We got some uh, 
it's an it's an op-ed uh, by Adam Grant, who's one of our one of our favorite uh, sociologists, and um, he's basically talking about <clears throat> something we've talked about uh, ad nauseum, and, and CJ's actually um, going to be writing about it at the end of this week. So I'll leave it to him for the most part, but I, I did want to point it out because um, the title is "Unless You're Oprah, Be Yourself" is terrible advice. And uh, his main point is basically like if you're talking about authenticity, which we all uh, seem to be running for these days, authentic is not a good quality in any of us. If we're actually being authentic. Being ourself is actually um, going to lose us a lot of friends and um, and our jobs. So um, let me just read a little bit here. Um, I like that. And our jobs. And our jobs. <laughs> and our jobs. <laughs> um, yeah. So he says um, a decade ago, the author AJ Jacobs spent a few weeks trying to be totally authentic. He announced to an editor that he would try to sleep with her if he were single and informed his nanny that he would like to go on a date with her if his wife left him. He informed a friend's five-year-old daughter. Wait, that's inappropriate? (laughs) 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 That part's not, but let me finish. (laughs) He informed a friend's five-year-old daughter that the beetle in her hands was not napping, but dead. He told his in-laws that their conversation was boring. You can imagine how his experiment worked out. And then uh, he concludes... By saying deceit makes our world go round. Without lies, marriages would crumble, workers would be fired, egos would be shattered, governments would collapse. I mean, that's crazy. <laughs> so, do you guys watch the show The Path? No, no. but uh, I have friends who are doing a podcast it's about so it. So good! It is so good. But the, it's this cult, and the whole like the, the the whole. I mean, they think it's a religion, but it's called Myers, and but they're they're the thrust of the religion is that it's all about the family and it's all about honesty in the family. It's all about love in the family. It's all about things. And which sounds so nice, but then like the family is the family and it's like really dysfunctional, sinful people. And so it just all like, Oh my gosh, it just falls apart over and over again. And it reminds me so much of this. Like when we invest in this idea that we're, we've got to be our, or I hate to even say this again, but like, you know, live our best life now or be our best selves. It's like, you know, it's like that Luther quote, like, um, you know, you say that I deserve like death and hell or something and you'd be right. Like, it's like that actually at the end of the day, like that's pretty much who I am on the inside, you know? So I have to hide all that. Right. And yeah, that's fascinating. We've talked about this before, but Merton, Thomas Merton talks about the between seeing yourself and being yourself. Right. Mm. And so, uh, you know, he thinks like when you're seeing yourself, you're kind of doing a shadow projection self, but when you're being yourself, you know, you're actually being like, who you are in, in the best sense of yourself. And I think like this kind of like you, like, I, I think what uh, it's Merton is talking about something different than authenticity. Cause I think that, you know, what's interesting in our culture is that the moments where we'd re- we'd be really gifts or authentic would be probably moments of confession or apology when we really are aware of like, yeah, when we are really indebted and, but, but like, uh, like some of this over, or they talk, Grant talks about in the article, like high self monitors versus low self monitors. And some of that stuff is not moral, it's temperamental, it's just psychology. You know, like it's just, mm. these are, some of it he even says breaks down on gender lines and stuff like this. So sometimes what we call authenticity is really just like uh, temperament and stuff like below the iceberg. That's why he says, 
he likes sincerity versus authenticity, um, which I think there, I think he has a nice contrast there um, about what the difference are for him. Yeah. There. Yeah. And, and I mean, a lot of what this article is saying uh, connects to this other one um, by Mia Tokumitsu. I totally probably butchered that, but from, from Jacobean magazine mm-hmm. and, and she's talking about, sort of the pressure to, and thinking about these questions of vocation and uh, the life that you choose to live, um, that the big phrase is, do what you love, love what you do. And that not only is that just an impossible weight, uh, but it's also so fickle, you know, uh, to be sort of uh, chained to, like you said, Scott, like a temperament and to live by a temperament that is always changing uh, is sort of an impossible command. You know what I love and hate about this is um, the ministry. Because when you tell people that you're in the ministry, like in this current culture where everyone's so obsessed on like starting a nonprofit or like going to like build like wells in Africa, um, they're they're just like, oh my gosh. Like there's like always this intake of air and they're like, you must love your work. You know, like there and which is the hate part of it for me, because if it's been like a hard day and things are particularly heavy, I'm like, uh, actually I would really be like I would be so much happier like cutting hair right now than doing the work that I'm doing. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's fascinating to think about in ministry, because I, I remember sort of a weight even in seminary of like well, we ha- this is this, but this is important work. So we all have to love this work. You know, we're so lucky to get to do this work. And um, I mean, ministry's always been elevated, but I think particularly now it gets a whole different level of um, yeah of of people. I don't know. When we were at our church in New York, we we got dinner with um, with old friends, and we were telling them, you know, we had been in ministry since the last time we'd seen them. This is like, a, you know, Josh and I got married. He was a priest, blah, blah, blah. And they, um, they were so sweet, but they said, they said like, at least you mean it. Like, at least you're, you're living your life in a way that you mean it. Cause you're doing like what you, you know, basically you're like walking the walk. And I was just like, man, if you only knew like how hard and complicated, like all work is, you know, and maybe especially church work. So I don't know. Yeah, I think like to voc- I mean, some, we often reduce vocation to occupation. Yeah. And I think like, I think there's like, if we're thinking like Venn diagram, like we're all like, um, there's kind of like three things. There's like a relational self, right? Like your wife, husband, neighbor, friend, you know, cousin. Uh, the other sphere is like, uh, let's say like your occupational life. What, you know, what work exp- energy do you spend that makes the world go? You're a stay at home mom, you're a teacher. You're, you're a sanitation engineer, you're a software engineer, you know, you're a military general, whatever. And then I think there's your ecclesial life or spiritual community. It's something that's like, you know, for Christians, we'd say this is what, you know, the reality of Christian community. And I think that like the more those things overlap generally, like, yeah, yeah, you'll probably have a lot of happier days than if you, if none of them overlap, but like, Mm -hmm. but none of them overlap all the way for us all, you know, like, I mean, those things are just so sometimes like. You know, you got to, you got to, you really have meaningful work and you have a pretty good family, but you know, the nature of the spiritual life you live out in community just is tough because you find, can't find a community that you could gel with or doesn't know how to, you know, use your gifts and things like that. So we're all, we're all, we all, I think, live lives of aspirational ambiguity and, and all of that stuff. Mm, that's awesome. It's a great phrase, aspirational ambiguity. 
And if, if it, like, again, we, we said this a little before, we talked a little bit before, but, you know, it, concupiscence, like the fact that we love the wrong things and the fact that, like, without knowledge of God, which none of us have, uh, well, because we're sinful and broken, uh, without, like, our perspective on what we love, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and who we are is often ambiguous at best. Yeah. So that being said, go do what you love, everybody. No, uh, <laughs> you better. Have a cigarette, smoke or some else. tang, and lay out. <laughs> yeah. But if you can't do what you love, at least in God's, in God's economy and grace, you, you at least can know that you are loved, which there's freedom in that. Amen. Talk to you guys next week. All right. Thanks for listening to The Mockingcast. As always, you can find any of the content we reference on our website, mbird.com and we love mail so if you have any feedback you can email us at info at mbird.com and if you like what you heard please uh, go to iTunes and give us a rating or write a review or pass it along to a friend thanks again for listening and have a great weekend <laughs>